This is the Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors, where you'll hear about many aspects of law in England and Wales with special guests, industry experts, and local charities. Here's your host, Amanda Jones. Hello and welcome to Season 3 of The Legal Lounge. If you haven't heard the shows in the first and second seasons, there's plenty of content worth a listen, with conversations and advice about divorce, injury claims and business partnerships. There are also some excellent episodes where you'll hear from local charities and learn about the amazing work they do. You can listen to these shows on your podcast app or by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. In this episode, we welcome Hannah Barnes and Michelle Simmons from the Private Client Team. Private Client is a term used in the legal profession, but the average member of the public doesn't necessarily know what it means. Hannah and Michelle talk about a number of aspects including trusts, lasting powers of attorney and the process around wills and why you should make one. So I'm Hannah and I'm Michelle and we're going to be talking about private clients which is the area that we work in. Um, so we thought we would talk about private client really because it's a term that is bandied around by as legal professionals but a lot of individuals or clients or people that we meet perhaps don't understand what it might be and so it's a number of different areas are a part of private clients so we do wills, powers of attorney, administration of estates and we also deal with some trusts and some legal firms have Court of protection as part of private client, don't they? Whereas Lanyon Bowdler have their own special department dealing with that. We've got a specialist team. So, a will, most people probably know what a will is. It's something that we all know one day we're going to have to do, um, but it's something that we all tend to put off and think, actually, that's not, that's not for now. I'll do that when I'm a bit older, when I'm retired, when I need to think about it. But a will really, for anyone that doesn't maybe know what it actually is or what it means, um, it's a it's a legal way of leaving your assets to people that you want your money, your house to go to. It is really important. There are certain things in a will that are really important to put in and think about. And a will tends to include the appointment of executors and an executor is someone that you trust to deal with your estate when you die and as you can imagine our lives are full of things we tend to own houses we've got bank accounts we have social media accounts we have possessions that we tend to collect over the years and so you need to appoint someone that you trust to be able to work through all of that and and sort of bring your life to an end in a way. So absolutely appoint someone that you know that's going to honour your wishes. Yeah, definitely. And then as part of a will, you can also include specific gifts. So if you've got, I don't know, you've got a piece of jewellery that you really want your grandchild to have, you know, by all means, put that in. Um, You can include monetary gifts to people. Um, And then after that, anything that's left is known as your residuary estate. Um, And that passes to people or charities that you want to to leave, you know, those items to. Some people think, well, why would I have a solicitor to do my will when there are sort of documents in WH Smith or online that I can use to put together a will and I can do it by myself and my answer to that is there are certain types of wording in wills that have different effects 
So if I, for example, said I'm going to give my shares in Lloyds Bank to my granddaughter for argument's sake, if I no longer own those shares at the date of my death, that gift doesn't take effect. But if instead I said something like I give 350 shares in Lloyds Bank to my granddaughter, even if you don't own them when you die or you've never owned them, your estate would have to buy those shares for your granddaughter. And it's that difference of wording that my, as against a, that has a big effect on what people get. So that's one of the reasons why I'd say actually a solicitor has that experience. A solicitor can help guide you through the kinds of things to think about. Whilst you can make a will yourself, you could potentially do something that has an impact and does something with your estate that you don't intend. Why would you recommend I make a will? (laughs) So I would recommend everyone makes a will, no matter what age. But I was thinking about this before doing the podcast and I thought one of the main things, once you do a will, it gives you that peace of mind that you're looking after the people that you want to look after when you're gone. And it also gives you certainty that where I want my estate to go to is going to happen. So I think doing a will gives you that certainty and peace of mind. But we were talking about this earlier, that actually a lot of people that we come across, friends, family, have children or grandchildren or people in their lives that are perhaps vulnerable, that are maybe unable to manage their money because they have a physical disability or they have a mental condition or they're vulnerable in some way. And so for people in that situation, I can imagine it's quite worrying thinking, well, what is going to happen to them when I die? How do I make sure they're going to be okay? So in your will, you can actually put in place something known as a trust. That would mean that you are making sure that you're looking after that vulnerable person, your vulnerable child or grandchild, but they're not gonna be in control of the money that you give to them or the assets that you give to them. They're sort of protected from that onerous task of having to look after it. You can do that by putting a will in place. So that's one of the reasons I think, or another reason I think it's good to maybe put a will in place. And the other thing I hear a lot is people my age tend to say, well, what's the point of me doing a will now? I I don't really want to think about that. But actually, when you have young children, under the terms of your will, you can put what's known as a guardianship appointment. That means if you were to die whilst they're a minor and there was nobody else, you know, their father wasn't there to look after them, you can actually appoint someone to look after that child when you die, and it's a valid appointment. So that's perhaps another reason why it's not something just to think about when you are in your 60s or 70s. And then the other thing with younger people, we all think, well, I don't really have anything to leave. But actually, think about in your life if you work you might have death in service or you might have a mortgage protection policy in place and so those will come into fruition if something were to happen to you so it is something we should all be thinking about yeah definitely so michelle 
I'm going to ask you about lasting powers of attorney and powers of attorney generally. That's the area that you tend to sort of specialise in and have a particular interest. A power of attorney is um, a broad term for a legal document where a person, so a donor, can appoint another person, so an attorney, to make decisions on their behalf. They can not only make decisions, but they can sign documents for them. Some powers of attorney are limited for a specific purpose. For example, you might be away on holiday when there's a property transaction here in the UK, so you could appoint somebody to sign the paperwork for you while you're away. Um, or it could be specific to um, administering an estate. So you, an executor who has been appointed in a will might be quite elderly and just not able um, to undertake their duties. So they could appoint someone specifically to make those decisions on their behalf. A general power of attorney is a document um, very similar. It gives the same authority to another person. They're not perfect. They're generally regarded only being valid for a, about a 12-month period. Um, and also they cease to take effect once someone has lost capacity. The other type of power of attorney, which um, you could only draft up to September 2007 were enduring powers of attorney. So any enduring powers of attorney that you have in place at the moment are still valid. But the problem with these is that once you lose capacity, they need to be registered with the Office of the Public Guardian. So that could take that cause a delay of around, well, we're looking about 20 weeks at the moment to register uh, enduring powers of attorney and, and also lasting powers of attorney. Um, so enduring powers of attorney, partly for this reason, were replaced in 2007 by lasting powers of attorney. There are two types of lasting powers of attorney. There's one for your health and welfare decisions and one for your property and financial affairs. Broadly speaking, the health and welfare power of attorney will enable your attorneys to make decisions about um, whether or not you go into a care home or what medication or any treatment that you might have at hospital. And a very important part of the health and welfare power of attorney is that it enables your attorneys to make decisions about any life-sustaining treatment you might receive. The property and finance one, they enable the, your attorneys to make decisions about um, your, your money, basically. So they could sell or buy property on your behalf. Um, they could access your bank accounts, pay your bills. I think that's really interesting making the point that there are two different types of lasting power of attorney yeah. and I do find when sometimes not all the time but when people do come to see me they don't realize that there are two different types yeah. and they think that perhaps just doing a property and financial affairs power might also cover decisions about your medical treatments and so it is important to make that distinction. Most clients tend to think that oh I only need the property and finance one I don't need the health and welfare because my family are still going to be able to make decisions about me in the hospital which is generally the case but sometimes if there's a dispute between the medical staff and the family over the treatment you receive then you have got no legal clout unless you have got a health and welfare power of attorney in place. Yeah, and that's really important for people to know that because when they get into the situation where their loved one is in hospital and is perhaps unable to make decisions about what medical treatment they should get, it's too late. So really, that's one thing we try and do 
in our job is try to make that distinction between the two types of powers, but also how important it is to have the health and welfare lasting power of attorney. And it's also important to note that the earlier enduring power of attorney only covers property and finance. Again, people are under the impression it covers their health and welfare as well. In some cases where there's a valid EPA in place, uh, it is important to also have a health and welfare lasting power of attorney drawn up to go alongside it. Yeah, that is a really important distinction, isn't it? Um, And there will be people listening to this that have an enduring power of attorney so I think it is important to say if you do have an enduring power of attorney it is still valid it just means that unless you've done a health and welfare lasting power of attorney perhaps you're not going to be in a position where someone can make a decision for you regarding treatment if you've lost mental capacity and maybe it's worth having a think about Um, there's some really helpful guidance isn't there on the Office of the Public Guardian website, which if you don't know much about powers of attorney generally, that's probably the first place to maybe go and have a look to just get accustomed to the kind of things that they do and what they cover. Um, And, you know, as solicitors, we can help you prepare them. Before October 2007, most people would create what's known as an enduring power of attorney. But now, since that time, there's been something else which is known as lasting powers of attorney. Are you able to explain why, in your view, the law changed from being able to create enduring powers of attorney? Enduring powers of attorney are relatively straightforward documents. You might you may well have seen them before. They needed to be signed by the donor in front of a witness uh, and the attorneys, again, in front of a witness. Um, They weren't required to be registered, to be used, and they could be effective immediately. But of course, when the donor started to lose capacity in the attorney's opinion, then they did need to be registered with the Office of the Public Guardian. And at that point, I I guess, the Office of the Public Guardian were able to regulate um, the the attorney's uh, behaviour, the way they're handling another person's affairs when that person has lost capacity. So this was... I believe, replaced by lasting powers of attorney because the actual preparation of a lasting power of attorney involves many more parties than simply the donor, witnesses and attorneys. And also, of course, encompasses more than just property and finance. It does include the health and welfare of the attorney, obviously, when you do the two separate documents. Um, So in constructing an LPA, you have to have various parties such as the donor who signs in front of a witness, the attorneys who also sign in front of a witness, but there also needs to be an additional person called a certificate provider. So that person um, is somebody who would discuss the documents, the lasting powers of attorney with the donor, make sure that they fully understand the document and the consequences um, of that and appointing attorneys to make decisions on their behalf and the extent of the authority that they're giving to attorneys. Um, They also need to be satisfied that the donor isn't being forced into signing the power of attorney by their attorneys or any other individuals who may have an interest in in a person's estate. So who can be a certificate provider? Anybody who's over 18 um, and anybody who has known 
the person for more than two years uh, and also also somebody with su- the sufficient expertise um, so such as a solicitor or a, a, your GP. That's sufficient expertise in assessing someone's mental capacity isn't it? That's right yeah. It's sort of saying I know from my experience that this person understands what they're doing exactly by granting this document and I think that's another valuable reason why it's good to have a solicitor involved with helping you put together that lasting power well that's right yeah um if you don't have one then ordinarily I suppose a person might ask their next door neighbor to be their certificate provider which wouldn't necessarily be the best um solution but that you know the I suppose they'd be eligible because they've known that person for more than two years but are they able to make a capacity assessment of that person and also if it's the case of daughter who hasn't been involved with mum for very long comes and says right I want you to do a lasting power of attorney I want your neighbour or can your neighbour act as the certificate provider does that really give enough safeguard for mum who is going to potentially be vulnerable Um, And so a solicitor being involved in that process, we can assess situations like that. That's right. Yeah. And we were always looking out for indications that there might be some family members taking advantage. Not only are we able to provide the expertise, but also the independence. Um, We're not a part of that situation. So we can make we can take a step back and see overall what's happening in that family through our experience. So we're able to recognise um, situations like that and, and hopefully try to prevent people from being taken advantage of and in some cases um, of course we come across clients who may well be borderline capacity so may may have just about sufficient capacity to appoint an attorney and it's in their best interest to have an attorney because they're no longer able to manage their own affairs but you're kind of not really sure whether they absolutely have full capacity that's when we would consider bringing in a consultant or a medical professional um, to act as that certificate provider just to ensure that, that everything is being done correctly. On the topic of capacity you know we've talked about people that are able to grant a lasting power of attorney but what if you're in the situation where your loved one or f- family member has lost mental capacity And they're at a point that they can't make financial decisions, but they're also at a point where they can't tell you that they want you to act as their attorney. So where do you go in that situation? Okay, so unfortunately, it's too late for them to prepare lasting powers of attorney, um, which is very sad. Um, So the, the route then would be for the family or the local authority to um, seek a deputyship order from the Court of Protection. This is a long, onerous um, application and, and very costly, but it will probably be necessary if there is no power of attorney in place. Briefly, the process is that we would get a mental capacity assessment done on the donor, um, and if it's decided that they have definitely lost capacity uh, it would be for the family to or the local authorities to gather as much information as they can about the person's assets and their income and also about their relatives 
and then they would put together the application, notify any relevant parties, and then they would apply to the court for a deputship order. Um, and then the court then would make a decision about whether or not that person is a suitable person to be a deputy. So that deputy may not necessarily be somebody that you want to be handling your affairs, the local authority, for example. So it is best to, whilst you've got capacity, put lasting powers of attorney in place because you can choose the, the attorneys that you want to deal with your affairs. And the lasting powers of attorney also give you the opportunity to express any instructions or preferences um, to your attorneys about how you would like them to handle your affairs. So, for example, you might want, you might give your grandchildren £200 for a birthday gift, you can express that you would like your attorneys to continue doing that in your power of attorney. The message is have the conversations now and think about it now whilst you're able to. But also if you're in a situation where a loved one has gone past that point, it's not all lost. There are options for you. The Court of Protection is there because it looks after the interests of those people that can't look after their own money. The other area that we deal with as private client lawyers is the administration of someone's estate when they die. So putting into effect that will or dealing with the rules of intestacy. So when clients come in to see us, to ask us to help, with administering their loved one's estates. The question that is that tends to be asked is how long is this going to take? Are you able to maybe give a time frame or an idea of what is involved in bringing someone's estate to a close? A really straightforward estate, I would say to clients, is going to take six to 12 months. And I know that's like a really broad time frame but you never know what might happen in the administration of a state there are so many factors involved that could affect the time scale it can depend on loads of different things i mean first of all is there a will if there isn't a will our first thing first absolute first thing that we do is we search for the will this can involve contacting solicitors firms um doing a certainty search which can take in normal times 28 days but at the moment in covid the search period is twice as long so we have to wait two months until we actually get the certainty report back before we can actually administer start to administer an estate unless of course a will is found during that period so if it's an intestacy we know already that we can't start at all for two months other factors that could affect the the time scale um, is how many assets are there? How many how many people do we have to write to? Uh, how many banks, organisations are there? Shares? Is there property? Uh, if there is property, is there is it tenanted? Is someone living there? Um, so many different factors that could affect how long it's going to deal with an estate. The first part in the process, once we've established there's a will or isn't a will, um, if there isn't a will, uh, then we then need to find out what the family structure is. If it's if we're able to, if we're given a family tree uh, by the family, great. But we would recommend getting that checked by a genealogist. If we're not aware of any family members, then we would instruct a genealogist in that case. Again, causing more delays. And we might also be reliant on that genealogist report to see who who actually can be our client, who can instruct us to administer the estate. 
once all of that is established. <laughs> so once you know whether there's a will or if it's an intestacy situation, once you've established who benefits at that point. Yeah, once that's established, we would then um, write to all the financial organisations, arrange for valuers to go out to value the property, to value the possessions within the property, value any shareholdings. It's basically an information gathering process. Um, so we would gather all of that information. As you can imagine, that's not going to happen very quickly. But once we have that information, we can put together a schedule of assets and liabilities um, and then prepare the application for probate. That all needs to be approved by the client, signed off and then sent off to the probate registry. I think at the moment the probate registry are taking between about six to 12 weeks and that's quite a broad estimate mainly because some grants of probate are being issued more quickly than others. And the probate registry introduced an online system so some some of our applications go online and some don't. don't. Yeah I think it's important to say here that um, when we are now dealing with someone's estate and a grant of probate or a grant of letters of administration is needed. With a grant of probate application, it now is done online. Whereas years ago, we were doing it all through paper and clients would have to come in and and swear on an oath. And those rules have changed. It's now a legal statement which can be submitted through an application online, which in a sense has speeded up the process well, you say speeded up. <laughs> it's it's meant that from our point of view, for it's simpler yeah. to submit an application. But actually, at the probate registry, it's a little bit slower on their end, isn't it? Yes, in, in the uh, good old days where they were swearing the documents, we were getting grants back within ten working days. Yeah, yeah. I remember <laughs> so, that. It would be improvements. Yeah, you would, you'd send it off and two weeks later you'd get the grant, but that's not quite the case. So, you know, it's taking at the moment, if you think, once you know whether you've got a will or whether it's an intestacy situation and you know the setup, it takes about four to six weeks yeah. to gather the information to apply for the grant of probate. Yeah, just to get to that point. And yeah. then it's taking about six to 12 weeks to then have the grant of probate issued. And then after that, it's difficult really to give an exact time frame for when the estate's going to complete, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. So at that point, you've got your grant of representation, because of course there are different types of grants. You get your grant of representation, submit that to all of the financial institutions together with your closure forms, and then we'd start to market any property that's in the estate. So at the moment, thankfully, property is moving quite quickly but sometimes if you've got a property that's got specific issues with it it may not sell straight away Um, so that in itself can cause delays uh, in completing the administration of the estate once we've encashed the estate uh, it's it's then for us to make sure that there is no, no capital gains tax or if there is we have to settle that with the revenue Likewise, with income tax, um, we may have there may have been some income produced during the administration of the estate, which we would report and pay the tax on. So um, there's lots of other variables before we are able to actually distribute the estate 
it's up to us to then do estate accounts so we can account to all of the beneficiaries as to how the estate has been dealt with any expenses that have been incurred during the administration uh, we have to make that very clear to the beneficiaries administering an, an estate of someone you know we're bringing someone's life to a close so if you think about that sometimes it, it's straightforward if someone has straightforward assets but when someone has a lot of assets or more complicated assets or a more complicated family situation, it's not a case of getting from A to B. Sometimes you end up having to go to Z before you can get back to B. And sometimes if, for example, we declared, we, we, we've got a taxable estate and we declared that a property was worth 500000 at the date of death, but only actually sold for 300000 we'd have paid 40% tax on the difference it'd be in the best interest of the beneficiaries to claim that back so it's not as straightforward as people envisage and it also it does depend on the kind of assets you know if someone has an estate that is mainly consisting of properties you are really in the hands of the market you know as you said before the market at the moment is doing well but there are times when the market is not as buoyant and it may be more difficult to sell assets and in cash the estate so there are many different variables with estates um, but what is true of each estate is it needs to be finalized and each estate needs to be brought to a close because you never want to leave anything in abeyance. So if someone does have a shareholding somewhere, you want to deal with it. You need to either sell the shares or transfer them rather than saying, I'll deal with that at a later date. But there are certain assets, aren't there, where you do actually need the grant of representation. I get this question quite a lot. What is a grant of representation? Okay, so it is a document that gives a legal authority to the personal representative of an estate. So the personal representative is is a broad term for a person that can deal with the estate. So if there is a will, the executor would be regarded as the personal representative. If there is no will, then a beneficiary, a residuary beneficiary, would be entitled to take out a grant to the estate and they would be called an administrator. In that case, you would get a grant of letter of administration and in in the case of a will, you would get a grant of probate. That grant would enable that person then to unlock the assets. So that person has got the authority to close bank accounts, to sell property, to accept sale proceeds of a property. And then it is their duty to then distribute the estate in accordance with the terms of the will or the terms of intestacy. That's really interesting because a lot of people don't know the difference. Um, And I think a lot of people that I come across, they fear the word probate and they always ask the question, do I have to go for probate? And actually, it's not as scary as you think. It's, no. it's a process yeah. that has to be followed. It's a formality, it? yeah. Yeah. So you touched on trusts at the beginning of the podcast, Hannah. Uh, what is a trust? They're so prevalent in private client law that I can't not sort of mention them whilst we're sort of doing our introduction to private clients. So a trust is basically a legal mechanism whereby assets are looked after by a trustee or trustees for the benefit of beneficiaries. So a trust 
can be set up during your lifetime. You might say that you want to put some money in trust for your grandchildren to receive when they reach a certain age. Mm -hmm. Or you might say that under my will, I want to set up a trust. And you might do this for tax planning reasons. You might do it, as I said earlier on, to protect vulnerable people. What I would say about trusts is they are a complex area. And whilst they are sort of, they run through wills and lifetime tax planning quite generally, they are subject to their own tax regime. So for income tax, capital gains tax and inheritance tax, there can be specific rules for trusts. If you are thinking about doing anything like that, I would recommend you get legal advice, accountancy advice and financial advice, just to make sure that what you're thinking of doing is advisable, but also so that you're aware of the implications of putting in place a trust. Not only are there potential tax implications, but also running a trust is quite onerous in terms of the administration that's involved. Yeah, if you set up a trust, then do your trustees need to file tax returns? Potentially, they might have to. It depends on what's in the trust and the kind of trust that it is. So the general answer is potentially. And that's why I would say that accountants need to be involved. But I think it's interesting to think with trusts. I think whenever a trust is mentioned, people tend to sort of be fearful. But actually a lot of day-to-day stuff that we have or assets that we own, we actually can own them in the form of a trust. So if you own a house with somebody else, there is usually a a trust involved with that, with property ownership. And also, if, for example, you do a will and you leave your estate to your children at the age of 18, and if you died before those children reach 18, then the executors of your will will inevitably become, or potentially the trustees of, that trust for those children so whilst it is a complex area it is very important in the private clients general public would associate trust with um the rich but so you don't think about it in that way yeah and it a trust can occur with the simplest situation if you are doing a will that actually just get some legal advice because whatever you do, if you have young children and you're going to be leaving your estate to them at a certain age, different rules can can apply depending on what age you leave your estate to them. So you can inadvertently be creating a trust, couldn't you? Yes. And so that's why it is important to just be aware trusts can occur in wills and they are an important part of private clients but get the right advice in terms of trusts we have a specific trust department as part of our private client team i believe edward reese has already done a podcast on the topic of trust so if you are interested i would recommend you listen to that so finally to close this podcast we thought it might be helpful for our listeners to to leave you with three top tips for choosing the right solicitor for you. Michelle, do you want to start? Okay, yeah. So my top tip is that when you make that initial phone call to the solicitor's firm and you get to speak to 
a lawyer that potentially might deal with your case. Do you have a good rapport with that person? Do you have a good relationship? Do you have a good feeling? Do you feel like they're understanding what your needs are? Are they empathetic? Do you think that they could be the type of person that could get you through this process? Because we, let's face it, we go to see a solicitor usually in a probably a bad time in our lives when we've lost someone or we're going through a divorce or house move, all very stressful times. My top tip is find someone you have a good rapport with and you know that you can work with that person for that period in your life that you know is going to be probably quite stressful and potentially upsetting. Really good tip. The other tip I was thinking of is there are a number of solicitors out there and a number of law firms. So think about places that have good reviews generally google facebook but also people that you can get a personal recommendation for yeah that's that's best so if for example you have an accountant Mm. they may know a good solicitor so that's the other one and i think our final one that we'd thought about is don't let price be your guide don't let price be your only guide yeah you want to be able to feel comfortable with that solicitor or lawyer and be confident that they are going to do the right job for you. Yeah, as long as their pricing is clear. Yeah, clear pricing structure from the beginning so you know where you stand. Not all cases we are going to be able to provide a clear indication of what it is going to be from start to finish. But we try to be as clear from the beginning this is what we're going to do for you this is what we think it will cost but we will keep in touch with you so a clear pricing structure and there's no surprises about the prices yes thanks to hannah and michelle for lending their expertise yet more proof that lawyers don't bite if you need legal help from either of them please get in touch through lblaw.co.uk if you have a particular legal issue you'd like me to put to our specialist for an upcoming episode please let me know by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast Thanks for listening. If you found the conversations helpful, please remember to follow, review and share the episodes. And don't forget to go back and check out some of the shows from the other seasons. Speak to you soon. That was the Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors. Visit lblaw.co.uk slash podcast for helpful resources. And please do follow or subscribe on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.